0: Good evening. Good evening. It's a packed house. I just told Mr. Graves that unfortunately, and I mean unfortunately, we had to turn the number of people away, but I'd rather see a packed house than not a packed house for him. Anthony Graves is also known as Death Row Exoneree 138. He spent more than 18 years in prison, 16 of those in solitary confinement, 12 on Texas death row with two execution dates for a crime he did not commit. With a steadfast focus on his innocence and the tireless work of the Innocence Network, he was vindicated and released in 2010. His powerful story directly addresses our common experience theme for 2017-2018, the search for justice, our response to crime in the 21st century. Crime and criminal justice are among the major civil rights issues of our time. The rights of victims and defendants, the rights of prisoners and those in custody, and the treatment of marginalized groups, these are among the issues we are considering every week for this common experience theme. Since his release in 2010, Anthony Graves' speaking engagements have included the American Bar Association Death Penalty Representation Project's 25th anniversary with retired Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens, and he also testified at the United States Senate Judiciary hearing on solitary confinement led by Senator Dick Durbin. Mr. Graves is a prominent activist with the American Civil Liberties Union. His story has been featured on two covers of Texas Monthly, The Katie Couric Show, and the Emmy Award-winning documentary, Grave Injustice. In 2013, he started a scholarship at the University of Texas Law School in the name of his champion, Nicole Casares. And on Martin Luther King Day 2014, he filed a grievance against the district attorney who wrongfully convicted him. He started the Anthony Graves Foundation to give children left behind by the criminal justice system a chance to live happy, productive lives and to become the powerful new foundation for all of our communities. The Anthony Graves Foundation promotes fairness and affects reform in our criminal justice system by fighting for those who have been wrongfully convicted, those with overly harsh sentences and cases of actual innocence. Please join me warmly in welcoming Texas State University Mr. Anthony Graves.
1: Wow, wow, wow. Texas State University. First of all, I want to say thank you. Thank you for inviting me to share my story with you all. Uh, It's quite a remarkable story. But before I begin, I want to ask a question. How many of you out here, I just want to see a show of hands. How many of you out here, number one, never thought about the death penalty? Yeah. Now, how many of you think that you could never be sentenced to death for a crime you didn't commit. Come on, show your hand. You know, you guys do not go to bed thinking that maybe you can be convicted. All right? For those who just raised their hand, I used to be one of you. I never thought that someone could convict me for a crime I knew absolutely nothing about. And then on top of that, sentence me to death where, well, as they say, some of the worst are the worst reside. But we'll get back to that. Now I want to tell you about my story. Uh, back in 1992, that was a horrible, horrible crime that had taken place in a small town, Somerville, Texas. I don't know if any of you know it. Six people were murdered. Four were children, one was a teenager, and one was a grandparent. They were shot, stabbed, bodies were bludgeoned, gasoline was poured all over their bodies, and the house was burned down. So, in August, attempt to cover up the crime scene. So, imagine this small town, this type of crime happened. That was outrage. They were scared. As a matter of fact, the mayor came out the next day in the papers and said that whoever had done this crime didn't even deserve a trial. They should be caught and hanged. And that's kind of the way they pursued the case. Because several days later, I think maybe a week later, so that was a funeral, right? And they buried all these people. And one guy showed up to the funeral with bandages on his head, wrapped around his head and his hands like he had been burned in a fire. So he immediately became a person of interest to the Texas Rangers that were there. Now after the funeral, they decided to follow this man home because they wanted to speak with him. They followed him home, asked if he, they could speak with him, he agreed, and then they took him to the DPS office where they interrogate him over 14 hours. Don't nobody know what all he was saying, but we know that he was interrogated for over 14 hours. And at the end of it all, they tell him, we don't want you. We want the person that was with you. That's all we want, and we'll let you go. So this man's name was Robert Carter. And according to Robert Carter's story, he said, the reason why I call Anthony Gray's name is because when they were taking me to the DPS office, I seen a jeep coming off the freeway onto the feeder and I seen four black guys in it. I thought Anthony was in the jeep. So because he thought I was in the jeep, he really didn't know me, but he thought that I was a face that was in his jeep after they interrogated him for so many hours and told him they would let him go if they just call the name of the person that had done the crime with him. So guess what he did? He called my name. Right? He called my name and said that I was involved in this crime. But hold on. That shouldn't be enough to go pick a man up, arrest him, and charge him with capital murder. You got to have something else, right? Has to be corroborating evidence or something, right? You just should. We don't just let our system pick someone up and just sit them on the death row because somebody said they were with them. That's my story. (laughs) That's my story. See, because when Mr. Carter lied and said that I was involved in a crime with him, the next morning, there was a knock on my door. Okay, And it was my neighbor, Mike. And Mike came to tell me that the police was looking for me. And I asked Mike, why the police look for me? He said, I don't know, man, but they just came by and they wanted to know, is that your vehicle out there? And so I ended up thinking, Mike, but I was thinking, why would the police look for me? So I'm thinking that if the police looking for me, I usually go to my auntie's home every day. So surely they've gone by there. So I pick up the phone, and I call my auntie, and I asked her. I said, Ain't it, uh, Mike just told me that the police looking for me. Had they been down there?" She said, "No. Why the police looking for you?" I, said, I don't know. That's just what Mike told me. So she said, "Well, call the police and find out." <laughs> right. Huh, y'all laughing all laughing already? <laughs> yeah, she said, call the police and find out. So I said, all right, well, I hung up and said, well, I'll just put a shirt on. I'm going to go downstairs, go outside, and I'm going to look for the police. Because I want to know, why is the police looking for me? Let me just tell you guys something. If you don't hear nothing else that I say, and I'm up there too, you'll hear nothing else that I say this evening. Hear this don't ever go look for the police, okay? Don't, don't do that, okay? Yeah. Let them do their job, all right? That's what we pay them for. Right? because, well, that's what the attorney told me after the fact, all right? Yeah, he said, now, why you gonna look for the attorney? I said, I mean, for the uh, laws, they were looking for me. All right? So, yeah, don't ever go look for the police, all right? Anyway, when I went downstairs, police cruiser pulls up and seeing me, he gets out I stop and he asks me my name so I tell him and he asks me for some ID I go in my back pocket, I show him my ID but by this time I see the look on his face he's perplexed because I'm not running, I don't seem to be scared and all I want to know is hey, why you what you looking for me for? right? so he tell me, he say, well I've been told to come pick you up Take you downtown because some officers want to talk to you. I said, Can you tell me why? He said, No, when you get there, the officers will tell you. So by this time, my neighbor Mike had come out and I was telling Mike, Hey man, uh, this officer said I have to go to the police station for something, but my mom is on the way home. Could you let her know and tell her that I, I should be right back? Because at the most, I'm thinking maybe I got a traffic ticket out that I've got to pay. And they're rounding up everybody? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> right? That's just where my mind is at. And, and so, after I tell Mike that, the officer can cuss me, puts me in the vehicle, and now we're going down the main street with me in the back of a police vehicle, and I don't even know why I'm back there. People pulling up to uh, stop sign, and they looking, trying to, you know how we do looking, trying to see who back, who in the car, and I'm
2: ducking. I'm
1: supposed to be in here. It's embarrassing, okay? And then I get down to the police station. Once they get to the police station, they put me in the booking room, ask me to take everything out of my pockets and have a seat. Now, understand this. I'm charged with capital murder. I'm in the booking room. I have no handcuffs on. They just told me to take a seat. They just ignored me for about 20, 30 minutes. So I started asking the police officers that were coming in and out of the booking room, hey man, can somebody tell me why I'm here? You know, because if, in my mind, number one, I know I haven't done anything wrong, but let's just clear this up because I got plans, right? <laughs> yeah, I had plans that night. Me and my girlfriend was supposed to be meeting later on after, she went and done some business, but I had
2: plans, <laughs> okay?
1: And I'm sitting here, and I'm sitting here, and finally, Four Texas Rangers and a magistrate comes into the book room. Ask me my name, I tell them. Then they tell me to stand up. When they tell me to stand up, they started reading me my rights. Right? As a matter of fact, I think I have footage to show you just that, that moment when I was being told that I was being charged with capital murder. and y'all just have to hold on for one second. It took a little while for them to book me, okay? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You you see how I'm just standing there, (laughs) like, (laughs) what? That's a video, but that's just how shocked I was. (laughs) You know? Hey, guys, until they can get the audio working, we're just going to narrate this story. Is that okay? All right, fantastic. So anyway, when they take me into the booking room, they start reading me my rights. I'm standing there and they just read me around. You got the right to remain solid. I mean, I'm, hopefully none of you guys have ever heard this before because you're all college students. But they started reading me my rights, and I'm just standing there because I don't know where they're going. I'm still thinking this is about a ticket, okay? Let me tell you about naivete. Naivite say lives, because I'm still thinking that this is just a ticket. There's no way in heck I'm thinking what they're thinking. And so when the magist- they ask me to stand up, I stand up and the magistrate begin reading me my rights. All of a sudden she tells me, you've been charged with <laughs> capital murder. Oh, I wish I had that video for you guys. And I'm like, what? Capital murder? I'm thinking of a ticket. Hey, capital murder? Who, who, who got me? I, I don't know nothing. So, so they, they interrupted me and said, hey, look, would you like to come and talk with us? And of course I wanted to talk with them because, like I said, I had plans. So let's get this cleared up, right, so I can go home. You know, just a mistake, no problem. That's how the system is supposed to work. When you acknowledge that a mistake has been made, correct it. That's all we want with our criminal justice system. We know that you're not going to get it right all the time, but when you get it wrong, correct it. And that makes for a better system. But that's not what they do. So when we get back into this room, I mean, they just light into me. I am everything but the child of God. I had to take my shirt off and see if I had any burn marks on me. I'm just, I'm being treated like a criminal right now, okay? And, and, and I cooperated to come down here to be treated like a criminal, okay? So after they interrogated me for many, many hours, one of the Texas Rangers, the head Texas Ranger, walks up <clears throat> into my face and says to me, Mr. Graves, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't believe you did this. But if you don't give me nothing that I can put on Mr. Carter, we're going to put the whole thing on you. And if you are actually innocent, then don't let no grass grow in your grave. Now get him out of here. okay? Hey. We might have it. (laughs) right? We might relive this moment. You're
0: charged with the offense of capital murder. Who? And after they've you for this offense, has been filed in court. Do you understand what I've told you, Anthony? Yes, ma'am.
1: a murder.
3: Me? Who? 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 I mean, you have a chance to talk to your officers and ask them where the case. They do. Oh, okay. You want to talk to them? Sure. Man, this <laughs> this is a big mistake.
1: a murder. I've never even shot a gun in my life. God, all. <laughs> okay. She wants you to sign this.
3: And when you don't oh. sign, this is not saying you don't just said your rights in the grant to you. You, a okay.
0: and you get a copy
3: of it. And you'll get a copy of this right here. Person warned.
1: See, that was the actual footage. And if you just wasn't looking at my socks, you could understand I didn't know nothing about what was going on, okay? I know some of y'all was checking out the socks, all right? I know you y'all was up there checking out my, my wardrobe at the time, but if, if you paid attention to that, Anthony Graves knew nothing about what they were saying. I, I wanted to ask them, oh, again, could you, I mean, are you sure? But, okay, so they didn't want to talk to me about that at the time. They were just trying to get me to say that I did a crime, that I didn't know nothing about. So when I went to jail that night, I ended up spending two and a half years waiting for trial. What you going to try me on? Okay. So you sit me in jail two and a half years talking about trying this case. But what they were doing and what we didn't know at the time was that Mr. Carter had already told them I was innocent. He told them that the first night after he initially lied. But they hid that from us. They never told us that. What they do, they go arrest his wife, charge her with capital murder, put her in jail for two months, and then tell her to walk away and don't say nothing about the case. And then they went ahead on to put pressure on Mr. Carter to lie on Anthony Graves because they said that's no statute of limitation for capital murder, meaning we can still go after your wife. So according to Mr. Carter, he said that he was between a uh, rock and a hard place. Uh, uh, Lie on Mr. Mr. Graves and and keep my wife free. Don't lie on Mr. Graves, and they're going to go after my wife. So a lot of you in there probably have wives. And if that was a decision you had to make, you understand what I'm saying? Well, some of you guys, I mean, (laughs) some of you probably... (laughs) Just go take the wife,
3: but, I'm
2: say, I'm
1: say, right? but, but, but that was his that was the decision he had to make, and so he said he said well the way I seen it was Mr. Graves' children had their mother, but if they take my wife, my son won't have a mother or father because they had already convicted him. So he said I chose to do the lesser of the two evils. I lied on Mr. Graves. Okay. So I stayed in jail two and a half years. Finally, we get to the trial. They give me a change of venue down to Angleton, Texas. We get to trial. So by the time we get there, the reason why we was in Angleton because they wanted to give me a change of venue so that I can get a fair trial because of all the media publicity and everything, right? So I'm going to go down to Angleton and they're going to give me a shot of a fair trial. The week before the trial started, The prosecutor came down to Angleton and every day he was on the evening news talking about I was guilty. So much for change of being. But there was no one, there was no oversight, no one to admonish this this prosecutor. There were no consequences for what he was doing, which was totally violating the constitutional rights of me. But yet, he was able to get away with it. And then we went to Vardai. All those people that was looking at the news were sitting out there just like like you guys are now. And I'm on the stage in the chair, sitting with my attorneys. And the prosecutor's over here. And my attorneys, every time we bring one of you guys up as a potential jury, we get to question you. And my attorney would ask each and every potential jury, "What what do you think about my client, Mr. Graves, sitting here today? And at least seven out of ten would say, he must have done something, otherwise you wouldn't have him here. Those became the jury of my peers. And they did not look like me. Okay? I'm being honest with you. It was 11 whites and one black. Okay? And, and, and when they got ready to go and pick the foreman, we, we, we're gonna have some real conversation. Okay? So when they got ready to go pick the foreman of the jury, my attorney tells me, he said, hey, I'm gonna go into the room and see who they're gonna pick for the foreman. Remember I told you this one black person on my jury, a black guy. And I told my attorney, just, just off the top of my head, it's gonna be the black guy. He said, huh? I said, man, it's gonna be the black guy. So he goes back into the jury room, he comes back five minutes later like he's seen a ghost, <laughs> and he says, how did you know it was gonna be the black guy? I bet some of y'all could finish this sentence for me. I said, because, man, definitely convict me before you even hear this case. And, and, and you have to ask yourself this, right? How many times have you seen that white people ready to follow one black man? Unless they knew where he was going. Come on, let's be real. It was 11 whites in there, one black, and he got picked to be the foreman of the jury. What does that say to you? The, to me, it says the writing was on the wall. That's what it said to me. And so as I'm going through trial, we done picked the jury. Juries that said that I must have done something, otherwise I wouldn't be here. We're now rehabilitated because we have what is called rehabilitation of the jury, Meaning that if he can he can say that. But all I have to ask him is if he can follow the law. And if he tells me that he can follow the law, then he's a rehabilitated jury, regardless of what he initially said. He just needs to be able to follow the law. Now, how many law-abiding citizens are going to be in the courtroom saying they can't follow the law? (laughs) That's simple, right? So when he said, yeah, I can follow the law, became a jury of my peers. And I went to trial for three weeks. Two of us just picking the jury. And I ended up being convicted for something I knew absolutely nothing about. Right? And see, so when you go into through a capital case, you have two parts. You have innocence and guilt, and then if you're found guilty, you have the punishment phase. Right? And so now they've found me guilty, and we're going to go into the punishment phase. So my attorney comes to me and says, hey man, I want to put your family members on so they can talk about your character. And I said, no, I don't want my family up there. He said, Mr. Graves, I believe in your innocence, but the state will kill you. And I want to put your family up there to save your life so that then I can help get you your freedom. I said, man, I don't want my family up there. He said, why? I said, man, because this is a joke. How you just going to pick me up from my home, uh, put me in jail, sentence me, find me guilty of a crime that happened in a town I don't go to, I don't know nobody, they don't know me, I don't have no, I'm not a criminal, how can this just happen? So it's a joke, and I don't want my family to be a part of it. But they wanted to do it, so reluctantly I agreed, and I watched my. I watched my mother get up there and talk about her son, her oldest child, being the strength of the family. Then I watched my sister get up there and talk about her oldest brother, how he took time out to babysit her, 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 her daughter and her little son while she went off to of college. Then I heard my son get up there. And see, my son was dealing with sickle cell anemia. And every time he would have a crisis and had to go to the hospital, I was always there with him. I spent nights in bed with him. And I'm listening at my son talking to 12 strangers that don't know him, he don't know them, and they don't know me. Begged 12 people to save his dad's life. Spare his dad's life for something he didn't do. The jury went back into the jury room and in an hour and a half came out and sentenced me to death. So, when they sent us me to death, they didn't just send us me to death. See, this thing has what is known as a ripple effect. Okay? It don't just touch the person that's sitting in that seat, it touches his entire family. So you need to be correct when you get that person because it's gonna affect his entire family.
3: You're charged with the offense of capital. Okay. Not again!
1: This <laughs> is my mom. With a mouth open. Not even when I was by myself, being at work sometimes. Certain friends I would, you know, break down, talking to them about it, you know, and they would
2: kind of give me encouragement, but. Nothing could, you know, really encourage me at that moment, but thinking that, you know, they're going to really kill my son for something he didn't do.
1: That's the ripple effect. Well, let me add to what she was saying. <laughs> the whole time that I was down there, society treated my family bad, because they thought my mom had raised a killer. And they treated her bad. All her friends were no longer her friends anymore. So much to the point she had to start getting counsel. When I got my first execution date, well, let me digress. Let me go back to after I was sentenced. So after I was sentenced, and they came back and they sentenced me to death, I just said that because I was so emotionally drained. I've been fighting to save my life, to prove my innocence, for over two and a half years. And I shouldn't have to. I haven't done anything wrong to anyone. I don't have a record like that. And yet I'm convicted and sentenced to death. So when they sentenced me, I never, I never reacted. I was just mentally drained. And so the DA took that as a sign that I didn't understand So he jumps up and he says, "Judge, I don't think Mr. Graves understands what just took place. I'm not dumb. I understood. All right, you just convicted me for something I didn't do. What do you want me to do? Stand up, clap, give you a victory lap? What do you want me to do?" So I just sat there, and for the first time, I started thinking about my son and what he was saying to them. That's the first time I cried. Because I sit there and looked at my son, telling them folks that he need his dad. Because he's sick. And them folks didn't even listen to him. And they sentenced me to death. And I go to death row. Now, I don't know what you heard about death row. But before I got there, what I heard was that these were the worst of the worst people. Okay? And now I have to go and live with them. That is very scary. So much so that when they, when they first took me down there, they put me on this wing called J-23. J-23 was where the inmates who acted bad, that's where they put them in. So when I found that out, I'm asked, okay, well, so why I, have, I just got here? Give me a chance to act bad, right? <laughs> Shoot, don't just put me down there with the bad people at now. But what happened, they had to put me down there Because that road was too crowded. That's the only place they could put me. Imagine that. 530-some men were sitting there waiting to be executed before I got there. And then they had no more room. And so they had to put me down there in that that cell. I spent a total of 12 and a half years on that road. I spent six total in, in, in jail, which is crazy. But when you can't try nobody, you just sit them in jail and hope they make a, a plea agreement with you. But I stayed on death row 12 and a half years. I, we was on LS1 unit first. When we was on LS1, we had an opportunity to kind of, kind, of, kind of co-mingle with each other. We had what they call a work program. We can go out and make the officers clothes, And then in turn, they would let us wreck together and play handball and basketball together. I just death row inmates because we were all isolated from regular population. So I stayed down there, and I got to talking to these guys, got to get to know these guys, and then I walked away thinking, these are not no monsters. This is somebody's child. This is somebody's son. This is somebody's brother. And they made one mistake, and we say kill them. We don't have no alternative other than just to kill them. And I always like to bring up this story about a guy named Napoleon Beasley. He wasn't innocent. He was guilty. He was 17 years old. Valedictorian. a victory. Great Sports, athlete. Never come from a great family. Never done a, day, a thing wrong a day in his life. Until one night. Him and some friends decided to go joyride. And they said they're going to steal a car to do. Put a little peer pressure on Beasley. He gets in and go with them. They give him the gun, right? So they see a a vehicle in the driveway, stop, tell Napoleon to go get the vehicle, give him the gun. He jumps out to go and try to get in the vehicle. Whoever owned the vehicle came out their house, spooked him. he turned around and shot to get away and killed the man. Killed him. He was sentenced to death. Never done nothing bad in his life. One act. And I know you probably say, well, he killed a man. Yeah, true. True. But let me tell you who he killed, so you can understand why he went to death row. He killed the father of a district judge. Now, he was 17. Where it says that the mind hasn't even fully developed yet. But he was 17. That was a big push nationwide. It was an international push. I seen Desmond Tutu and all of them come down here to support this young man. Because while this young man was down there, he took his time to write to whoever he could, children that were from broken homes and was sharing his story with them, asking them to put down their flag and pick up a book. He was making a difference from behind those walls because of what he had done. He was so remorseful, he just wanted to share his story in the hope of saving somebody else's life. Because he was changed just like that. Decided to go joyride. 17, finna go off to college. Decided to go joyride. And he ended up on death row. And we killed him. After he did all this work trying to redeem himself, writing all these letters to the parole and probation officer that had clients that he was wanting to reach out to, and doing great work. And the whole world was saying, don't kill this kid, because this kid was only 17. His mind wasn't even fully developed. He was an impressionable kid. Just give him a life sentence or something, don't kill his kid. And the state of Texas said, nah, we're going to kill him. And then after we kill him, then we'll do away with executing people who, was, who committed the crime at the age of 17. But he killed a district judge. So we're going to execute him first before they change that. That's how our system works. That's exactly how our system works. So as I say, I stayed down there all that time. I didn't know that Mr. Carter had been reaching out to any and everyone he could to tell him that I was innocent. Attorneys, whoever. Right? The night, the day he got ready to get executed, he could have been saying anything to anyone. He had his family there, the victim's family there. He could have said a whole lot of whatever he wanted to say. But you know what he was saying? For one more time, he was trying to tell the world before he took his last breath I lied on Anthony Graves I lied on Anthony Graves uh, I think I have a video if you can show it and this is his dying declaration
2: to the Davis family I'm sorry for all the pain that I caused your family it was me and me alone Anthony Graves had nothing to do with that I lied on him in court. My wife had nothing to do with it. Anthony Graves don't even know anything about it. My wife don't know anything about it. But I hope that you can find your peace and comfort and strength in Jesus Christ alone. Like I said, I'm sorry for hurting your family. And it is a shame that it had to come to this. So I hope that you do find Peace. Not in my death, but in Christ, as He is the only one that can give you the strength that you need. And to my family, I love you. Ah, you have been a blessing to me, and I love you all. And one day I will see you, Abu. Behold your son, and Anitra, behold your mother. I love you. I'm ready to go home and be with my Lord.
1: That was Robert Carter's execution. We had reenacted, but those were his words as they was putting poison in his veins. He could have been saying anything and everything, but he was trying to make one more last attempt to clear innocent man's name. That was in 2000, I didn't get out to 2010. Ten more years later. And along the way, I had two execution days. And I witnessed almost 500 men being murdered around me. This was just like, I can't even describe the chaos. Sometimes they would execute two men in the same day. They would execute them, clean off the garnet, and bring another person over and execute it, just like animals. And they were doing it in all of our names. So that means that we have a voice in this thing. You gotta use it. And you gotta use it at the ballot box. You gotta know who your your, uh, nominees running for offices are, what they stand for. You can no longer pick their names because they're familiar. You gotta know what these people stand for. And if they don't stand for what you stand for, they don't pull that lever. We are at at a place in our country where it's so important to take your voice to the ballot box. It is that important. We have a system that is totally off, it's just totally off the tracks. And it's threatening all of us. Let me just say this. And I want you to think about this. If you don't make at least $150,000 a year in this country, you are not exempt from the death penalty. I'm, I'm going to say that one more time. If you don't make at least $150,000 a year in this country, you are not exempt from the death penalty. So whether you believe in it or you don't believe in it, If you don't make $150,000 or more in this country, you're prone to it. You're prone to it. So pay attention to it. Because the last thing you want is for someone to come knock on your door saying that they have to take you to jail. For something you know absolutely nothing about. Okay. Anyway, back in 2006, my case was overturned. I had gone through the state court, state district court, federal district court, and now I'm in federal court. They're trying to execute me. I got one more step left. That's the Supreme Court. And if they don't go in my favor, they're going to kill me for something I know nothing about. Fifth Circuit, one of the most conservative courts in our nation. You know what I'm i mean, I'm, When I say one of the most conservative courts in our nation, if not the most conservative, gave me a 3-0 vote in my favor, citing egregious prosecutorial misconduct. Basically saying that had the, pres- the prosecutor not lied, withheld evidence, my witnesses, I wouldn't have even been in jail. See, I didn't tell you about my witness during trial, Miss Yolanda Matthews. See, Miss Yolanda Matthews was my alibi witness because I was with her all night. When she got ready to testify for me Prosecutor jumps up and asks to excuse the jury out of the room because he want to put something on record. They did that, and then the prosecutor went on to say that Ms. Alumna Mathis had now become a suspect, and if she come and testify for me, it's highly likely they're going to seek an indictment of capital murder against her. So my attorneys, being inexperienced, didn't know what to do. They decided, hey, we need to go tell Miss Mathis that because she don't have no representation. So they asked the judge. Could they be excused to go tell Ms. that because she's back in the witness room waiting to come testify? My attorney went back and told her that she busts out crying and run out the courtroom. Never waver, but she busts out crying and run out the courtroom. So I lose my key alibi witness. Because the prosecutor said that if she testified, he was gonna probably indict her on capital murder. No evidence against her or anything. This is two and a half years later. We're doing the trial. So when we go to closing arguments, the prosecutor goes in front of the jurors and says, well, Mr. Gray said he was with Ms. Matthews. Where is she at? Why, well, she's not here to testify for him. To make the jurors think I was lying. He didn't tell them that he just threatened an innocent woman with capital murder and she come testify. And so just like that, that's how I was convicted. 12 and a half years on death row. Finally, I'm old. my case is overturned and I'm headed back home. I'm thinking it's, it's over, it's a done deal. They're they the guy that lied on me and now the, 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 the courts have said that that was purge of testimony, overturned my conviction and told him release me or retry the case. But you gotta do it in 180 days. I ended up spending four more years and three months in jail. Finally because when I got back to court the judge that sentenced me to death had retired and the judge that was now on my case was his daughter and she was pushing for the case to go to trial even though prosecutors were telling her this man is innocent they had to threaten to go to the media and tell, and, and, and tell the media that the judge is holding an innocent person in jail if she don't sign these orders she didn't even want to sign the dismissal orders. She kept me in jail four and a half more years, put me on a million dollar bond without even a bond hearing. I was the only person in the United States to be sitting in jail for almost two and a half weeks on a capital murder case with no prosecutors on it. Everybody done got off the case. I went through 10 prosecutors. Each one would kick the case down the road because they didn't want to do the right thing. They would find out I'm innocent and then they would kick the case down the road. Well, we had an attorney general at the time who is now governor didn't want to have nothing to do with the case because he was going to be running for governor. So they just kicked my case down the road. They were willing to execute me just to make sure that he ended up being in the governor's seat. Okay, this is not made-up TV. This is real. These are all politicians, and this is how they play with our freedoms and our lives because we're not holding them accountable. Anyway, after four years, I'm sitting in my cell because they had been trying to give me, ask me to take a plea deal, and I kept telling them, you're going to kill me or you're going to free me. That's not going to be no deal. Okay, I'm innocent, and we're not going to play with that because they asked, well, what would he take? And my attorney came back. She said, I have to, whatever they say to me, I have to relay it to you. I know you're innocent, blah, blah, blah." but they want to know, like, for example, if they will give you time served today and let you walk out of here, would you plead guilty? She said, because here's the deal. People that know you're innocent are going to always believe in your innocent. But people that think you're guilty, you're probably not going to change their minds. But I am trying to save your life. And if they want to give you time served and let you go home today, I need to know if you'll take it. And I said to her, Nicole, if they're alpha being time served for this case, Y'all going to be feeding me in this cell. Y'all going to kill me or free me. There's not going to be any compromise on the truth. Yeah. Right? So that's how I stayed back there for four more years. Then, then finally, finally, they hired this lady named Miss Kelly Siegel, who was known for putting me in on death row. She put 19 men on death row. Okay? She got a, a show, cold case. Yeah, that's, that's the prosecutor that came to put me, put me back on death row. And she came in, and for the first few months, she did all her work, man. She went through every box of evidence they said they had. She told me, Anthony, I went through 26 boxes of what they call evidence. And there was not one shred of paper in there that linked you to anything. She said, so then I went to my investigators, and I asked them one by one, what did they think? She said, Mr. Graves, every one of my investigators came in and said, that man is innocent. So we went and told the special prosecutor, told the prosecutor this, and that's when they went to the judge, and the judge was refusing to sign the order because she wanted to go to trial. So when they threatened her with going to the media, she said, Well, she signed, and said, Well, let him go. And so they wanted to bring me to the court and apologize to me in front of the whole world and my family and everything. And the judge said, I don't want that hoopla in my court, let him go now. Well, just so y'all know, I wasn't mad. I was ready to go now, okay? We didn't have to wait for her to let me come back in the courtroom Monday. Let me go now. So that's what they did. So at 45 years old, after 18 and a half years, I walk out of jail with all I own and a little bit of box. And that was legal work and pictures. A 45-year-old man. And so by this time, they were in it, they were doing a documentary on me, Grave Injustice, 48 Hours was there when I walked out and Richard Schlesinger, the host, came up to me and he was like, hey man, you, how you feel? And I'm like, I feel good, <laughs> and, you know? And, and he said, well, do your mom know? And nobody knew because they had just done it. And I said, my other attorney said, no, I don't think his mom know. They said, well, call your mom, call your mom. He put the cell phone on my face and I said, I don't know how to use that thing. <laughs> Right, you got to remember, when I went, cell phone were this big that you plug into the car and you talk on that big receiver. Then I come home, cell phone this small, with a whole lot of buttons on it, and you take pictures and send around the world. I said, I don't know how to use that thing. So he said, so Nicole, my attorney said, well, I have his mom's number, let me call her. And so she dialed my mom's number. And let me tell you a story about my mom. I think I told some students earlier. Uh, when I was in jail the last four years, I could call my mother on the phone. It's very expensive, but I could call her. And every day I would call her, I would ask her, what was she cooking? And she would tell me, oh, I'm cooking some steak. I got some potatoes. And I said, hey, hey, don't tell me. She said, well, you asked. I said, yeah, but don't tell me.
2: I was just asking because I'm eating hot
1: dogs. Right? So she said, all right, well, I won't tell you no more. So this day, when Richard Schlesinger asked me that, and Nicole said, no, nobody knows, but I have a number. she dialed my mother's number. I heard my mother's voice, hello? And Nicole says to her, Ms. I think I have somebody that you want to talk to. And she passed me the phone. And I heard my mom, hello? And I know she, I she's kind of messing her head up because this is my attorney saying she has somebody that my mom want to talk to. And The only thing I know my mom will to talk to me, but I'm in jail in her mind. But this time when she said hello, I said to her, I said, Mom, and I could tell she really didn't know who it is. She said, huh? <laughs> I said, what you cooking? <laughs> right? As a matter of fact, I think, let me bag this up. Hey, because I want to show y'all something. Hey, this is the, uh, the video right here. Will be, first of all, Miss Kelly Stegler, in her own words, kind of we reenacted. But I want you to hear what she had to say about I me. Don't know. Hey, that's me. Okay. <laughs> ah, ah, ah. okay. ah. Not another. One more. That's it. <laughs> that will be.
0: Yes, all of Anthony Graves, carrying all of his belongings and looking a little dazed, walked out of jail Into the warm Texas sun.
2: Unbelievable!
0: (gasps) This is probably the dumbest question I've
2: ever (laughs) asked.
1: One more. I told you I didn't know about Tick
0: Dollars.
1: (laughs) There it is. There she goes.
0: Someone here. Hold on. His first call is a free man. Is to his mother. Say what you' cooking tonight.
1: His mother didn't know that her son was free. Can you put some on? Cause I'm on my way. This is your son. <laughs> and just so you know, I did not escape.
0: <laughs> and his first stop is home to his sons who had grown up without him. <laughs> and at long last to an embrace with his mother when was the last time you were able to put your arm around your so
3: thank you thank you thank you thank you
1: thank you uh, yeah, I just wanted to make a few of y'all cry, because I, I have a book coming out that I need y'all go buy. So, <laughs> uh, 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 more tears, more books, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, Anyway, uh, so that was a happy moment for me. That was October 27, 2010. That day put me on the path to being here sharing my story with you guys. Because since, since I've been out, I've, I've crisscrossed this globe sharing my story. I've spoken in places in the oldest churches in Rome. I've been to Paris. I've been to Switzerland. I never thought I'd go to all these places because I was on that road, OK? And now I'm out in burn University speaking and sharing my story. And I'm seeing the impact that it's having. And it was like, wow, OK? So this is why I went through that. See, we all go through something for something. We don't go through it for nothing. It's just us to, up to us to figure it out, okay? And when we figure it out, I mean, it's like bingo, okay? Thus become your purpose. But you have to figure it out, because if you don't figure it out, you're gonna go back through whatever you went through until you figure it out, okay? That's how it works. And I figured it out. And since I figured it out, I've been crisscrossing the globe trying to educate people like you about our need for criminal justice reform. And I just wanna to say to you guys, God is good. Alright? God is good,
2: good. Okay. Right.
1: And I wouldn't be here if it weren't for him. There were many nights. I didn't, I just didn't want to wake up anymore. But the next morning I did. And that's why I'm here to tell you guys, God is good. Don't never let somebody tell you that it's not. I'm a living witness to how good He can be. I'm a miracle. So with that, I'd just like to say thank you guys. If you have any questions, I think we're going to do a Q&A, but that's my story. And at the end of this, year, I just want you guys to know this. If you want to make a difference, you have to get involved. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna leave here feeling like I'm Kevin Hart or somebody. <laughs> All right. So I think they're gonna open it up to Q and A. But for those who have to leave, take care. And God bless.
0: For those who would like to ask questions, we have two microphones. One at the front of each aisle. We have an usher who will help with that. Be able to take probably about five or six questions. Then we need to move to the lobby for the signing period, but please feel free to come forward if you'd like to ask a question.
1: Uh, So we'll start right here.
3: Hi. So, what'd you eat that
2: night?
1: With <laughs> 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 your <own> <laughs> Hey, no, i would tell you like I tell everybody else. It's in the book. <laughs> 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 you gotta get a book. Uh, <laughs> uh, hold on. <laughs>
3: um, hi. Hi. I'd just like to say you have such a wonderful
2: spirit and an amazing sense of humor. And um, I just want to know, uh, how do you keep your spirit up? Um, what gives you so much hope? Know.
1: Uh, knowing that God is good. That's just it. Amen. Thank you. Uh, next. Uh, Mr. Graves, this uh, question has been burning uh, in
0: me since I've seen you. Uh, I'm very familiar with your story coming out of Breno. And I just want to know, uh, did you take my aunt Lisa? Do you got a son named Alex Graves?
1: We need to talk. <laughs> yes sir. Are you from Brooklyn? Yes sir. Odell, Texas. I have. Yeah, my son is Alex. Yes sir. That's my baby son. Yes sir. That's my cousin. Oh really? This family to me. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It's very nice to like meet you for the first time. I just want to say I'm
2: I'm a Spanish man, for real.
1: Wow, man. Thank you so much, man. And, and I'm gonna let Alex know I, I I met you and Lisa as well. Wow. Wow. You gotta go, man. I'm gonna cry. Uh, uh, uh,
3: hey. Yes, sir. Uh, hi, uh, my name is uh, Jesper. I'm an international student uh, from Norway. Uh, yeah, uh, first of all, just, just what, what an amazing story. Just, uh, you know, I was release, in Sweden, right? Huh? I was in Sweden. You were? Yeah.
1: Well, I wasn't, but. <laughs> yeah, I'm, sure was, I'm sure it was great, because <laughs> this was. I mean, you were just right down the road, man. <laughs>
3: No, uh, my question is, um, because I don't know if you know, but uh, Norway has a very, I mean, to Americans, sort of an unbelievable justice system. Uh, The maximum sentence, no matter what you can get, is 21 years. There's no death penalty. And um, we have, uh, I'm not sure if we have the lowest, but definitely uh, top five lowest return rates to prison in the world. So could you comment on that? What do you think about that kind of stuff? I think you have a good system.
1: That's what I think. I've, I've heard about your system. Like I said, I was in Sweden. I have friends from Norway, right? They used to write to me a lot, right? And Norway is like second home. But I, I definitely know about y'all's system, and I think y'all have a great system, because what your system is designed to do is rehabilitate, so that people can come out and be productive. Like,
2: right. We don't do
1: that. But we, in our system, we're about crown and punch. Okay, and we have to remove, we have to move away from crime and punishment and be about rehabilitation and reentry, okay? And that's what you guys are about. So y'all have a great, a great system. Yeah. Yes, system. All
3: right, thank you. All right, awesome. Thank, thank you. Right. Okay, let's we'll Mr. Greggs, I'm a basketball coach here. Men's, I have my team here, but not all of them got to come in. Some of them did. I wanted them to hear your story. I read about your story at Texas Monthly. I read about the story of Mr. Morton in Georgetown. Wow. Uh, about his situation. Uh, and I just wanted them to see, you know, I tell them if you want to win, you got to be tough. Yes, sir. And see how to, see a man who apparently had the toughness to survive. My question is for you is, how can, I mean, I see your prosecutor lie and cheat you out of, a, one-third of your life. I've seen Mr. Morton, you know, same with the prosecutor for Mr. Morton. I read about up in Dallas, so many men have been uh, proven innocent yeah. by a prosecutor in the 60s and 70s. What recourse of action do you have or, or can we do to make these prosecutors who are interested primarily in reelection, pay for making you and so many other young men, uh, men suffer? You know, that's a good
1: question, man. And the first thing I'll I'll start out with is saying that if you want to be heard in this country, you got to show up at the ballot box. That's it.
2: Your your
1: vote is your voice. And and, and if you don't like something that's going on in our system, that's kind of one of the ways you can change it. And, And another thing is... We elect officials, so that means they work for us. We have to remember that. So we can call them and say we don't like something because we're their boss and we should be calling them. We can do that. We can write to them. We can go to their office and tell them how we really feel. We're their constituents. And I think that if we start doing that, we'll send a message that we're going to hold you accountable. And if we're sending that message, And they know that. Then maybe they'll start doing the right thing. But but for right now, we're not sending the message. They're sending us the message. And because they're sending us the message, they got us back on our heels. And they're able to do what they want to do. You're a basketball coach. You know about that. When when your uh, players play on their heels, all right, they can't stop the crossover dribble. you know. And and that's what's happening with our system is we're not able to stop the crossover dribble. Because we back on our heels. What they're telling you, they're telling you that if you don't let me, if you don't let me win, then your house gonna get broken too, people gonna murder you, but if I win, I'ma protect you. And then one and they start sending anybody down there because you bought into it. We can't buy into that no more. Yeah. We have to say, and we had a famous saying in this country one day from a movie. Show me the money. Show me the evidence. OK, that's my right. If you're you asking me to allow you to kill this man in my name, show me the evidence. That's all I want to know. I have that right. I'm your boss. Show me the evidence. And if we start pressuring them like that, if we start letting them know that we're going to hold them accountable, they don't have no choice but to do the right thing. But right now, they have choices. And they're making the wrong choices because their choice now is to win, not to seek justice, but to win. And as a result, a lot of men are coming back from prison 20 and 30 years that shouldn't have ever been there. So I always say we can look at them, but before we do, we need to look at us because we are the one that's putting them in there. So we need to know who we're voting for when we vote. I, that's kind of what I was saying. On behalf of these
3: people, I'm saying we're sorry. not oh, and thank you, man. Yes, ma'am. You better hurry
1: up. They're even on you.
2: Uh, I, it's okay. How you doing? My name is Miracle, Miracle-Eviston. I'm a sophomore here. Um, I just wanted to know, I never really just put much thought into, like, the criminal justice system because I never really felt like, well, I did feel like it affected me, but your story definitely has got me wanting to get more informed about it, and I wanted to ask, um, I know you spent a lot, well, a good amount of time in solitary confinement, I wanted to ask about that because I, I never really knew how it worked. I always thought of like the, the, the white walls, I don't know, you know. I wanted to get some insight onto that, like what were your struggles? Um, I guess like how, like do you, did you feel a sense of like spiritual growth or like what, what, what is your insight into that? I want to get out of that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but solitary confinement is totally inhumane. Okay, it's, it's designed to do one thing, Let's, and I want to put this out there. Solid confinement Confiner is designed to break a man's will to live. That's all it's designed for. And so when you get back there, what they do is they close you in, and you're behind four walls. And there's nothing else in there but a steel bunk or a plastic mattress. They won't even give you a sheet or nothing because they don't want you to hang yourself. And they just put you back there and just literally, literally drive you insane. You don't get to go to rec, you don't get to do nothing but sit in that cell for 24 hours until they give you a shower. And they shower you three times a week, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Other than that, you're in that cell constantly. And the walls just close in and close in. And that's why you have such high suicide rates uh, in the, behind those solitary walls. Because it's not designed to rehabilitate you and get you back into the public. It's just designed to break your will of living. It's it's totally inhumane and it has no place in our society. That's just being real.
2: Well, glory to God that you got through that. Your story is so inspiring. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Yes, ma'am.
3: My name is Rose
2: Cevallo. Try not to cry.
1: Don't cry unless you buy a book. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I just want you to know that you have inspired me. I'm going in the same situation. Wow. I have a son that's um, 26 now. He was convicted of aggravated uh, sexual assault when he was 17. And got 36 years. Three counts. Consecutive. Not concurrent. Consecutive. 12 years.
3: And... I've done everything I can. I've appealed it It failed. So apparently, the appeal attorney went straight to habeas corpus. Didn't go through the channels, you know. And he denied him. So, so. I, y'all, y'all filed
1: on the uh, attorney for uh, being incompetent? Incompetent counsel? Because if he didn't follow the whole procedure, then he's been incompetent. He, he denied steps, which is due process. And if y'all didn't get on the steps to remedy the, the situation, then somebody was incompetent, and that has to be the attorney.
2: I found that out later when yeah. I talked to
1: Have you been able to file to the court uh, on the issue of being incompetent? Right, Because that's the issue that you can raise. You can file against your counselor for being incompetent, being incompetent, not performing his duties. And that can get him back in court and get the case all retried. But, I mean, it's a long shot, but it's worth a shot, OK? Uh, I filed because that what happened to me. My attorneys were incompetent. I didn't file They didn't do anything to them back then. Laws have changed now. That hold more accountable today. That's something you should talk to an attorney about. Don't give up hope.
2: I'm not gonna give up, thank you. Don't
1: give up hope. <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> you know? All right, we got one or two more.
3: Hi, I'm Gay Stevens. Um, I'm coming to Texas State so that I can one day become a victim advocate. And I knew that false accusations were a big problem with the criminal justice system. I just didn't know how widespread and how bad it was. And I was wondering how a freshman my age can get involved with this to help prevent stuff like this happening again. Well, first of all,
1: I'd like to say, welcome for the real world. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> this does happen, and it help It helps us a lot. But if you want to stop it, there are organizations that are out there that are working to abolish death penalty, help innocent people, help people who have been overly hard sinners, who are mentally ill. I would say to you, find an organization, a quality organization, and volunteer your time. That's how you can help. Thank you. Yeah. I think they just cut the lights out of you.
0: Oops. Oh well. Um, okay. So, for a lot of us, we don't hear much about the criminal justice system and injustices involved with that. Until we get to college here, do you think that there should be some sort of comprehensive education in high schools across the nation? How do you think that should be helped?
1: Well, I I think I think that definitely criminal justice course should be a required subject in class, and you should in that class number one learn about your constitutional rights. I bet how many of you in here know your constitutional rights? Right? We got so many people in college. In college. Today, and still don't know their constitutional rights. That's why it's so easy for them to wrongfully convict someone because you don't know what your rights are. So the first thing I would do is, in the, in that type of class, is teach my students their constitutional rights. That's the first thing I would do. Yes. And after that, we can go through a mock trial. We can. I want you to know how. I, I want you to know the workings of the DA's office. The. Uh, uh, the jury, how they, what what the, the guidelines are for. See, you get to know the system, because once you educate about the workings of the system, then you can become creative enough to figure out how to change the system, right? But you gotta educate yourself first, and that's what's the first thing I would do. And I definitely think that high school should have a curriculum dealing with criminal justice, because it's a big problem. Yeah.
0: Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, is that it? One more? Working. All right. My name's uh, Jeremy Gnard. Um I'm never gonna
3: meet you past this or even see you, but I'd like to shake your hand and say thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you.
1: Definitely, thank you. You're going to buy a book. <laughs> <laughs> to I'm going to here. All right. Well, if you don't do one, I'm going to see you one. Go ahead. We can exchange information. Sure. All right. All right. Where at? No, for real, I, they're going to do a sign. Where at? I think outside. <laughs> Yeah, they're going to do a sign. Thank you guys. Thank you so much.